This episode of Killer Mediums has been brought to you by Zencaster. Zencaster is my podcast recording station of choice. Not only does it make it easy for me to reach out to guests and to coordinate interviews without a bunch of create account prompts, but it also has a bunch of cool production tools for the back end of recordings, including a filler word removal feature that automatically removes all the ums and the ahs that plague my interviews. It saved me so much time on the editing floor. Uh, Want to get started? Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code KILLERMEDIUMS with no space. You'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It is time to share your story. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Hey listeners, this is William Sterling, and you're listening to the Killer Mediums Podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is recreational fear, and we're joined by two friends, Dr. Matthias Clausen from the Recreational Fear Lab and Jesse Sexton, LPC. As a warning, this is usually an incredibly spoiler-heavy podcast, but not today because we're shaking up the formula, so buckle up and let's get spooky. Uh, Everybody, how are we doing today? Doing good. Yes, doing good. <laughs> How are you, Mr. Host? I'm I'm surviving. Very excited about this interview. One, because I've never actually done an episode with a guest co-host before. So I'm I'm curious and very nervous about how this is going to go. I'm going to um, behave myself, I promise. <laughs> that would be great. Um, but let's start with some introductions here. I'm William Sterling. I'm a horror writer. I'm the host of this podcast. But more importantly, let's start with Jesse. Um, Jesse, who are you? Oh, <laughs> you seem to have um, spoiled that one. Um, I'm Jesse Gant Sexton. I am a counselor and have been for seven years. I've been in private practice and have my own business for the last five. Um, I specialize in work with teenagers and adults with anxiety. I have a special interest in like ADHD, parenting, and trauma. I met her host here, who I'm not sure what name to use because he <laughs> seems to have an alter ego in the horror world. Um, but I met him at the last year of my psychology degree, and um, we've been together since, and, and he introduced me to all things horror, and I'm sure we'll get into it later, but I went from zero horror, like the most anxiety, to <laughs> being able to really participate and watch and enjoy some of the, the themes. So yeah, glad to be here. I feel special. Yeah. So um, I'm bringing Jesse on finally. Uh, to to help me wade through the waters of the academia side of things, because our guest today, Dr. Matthias Clausen, comes to us from the Recreational Fear Lab. Uh, Dr. Clausen, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about the Fear Lab and what goes on there? Sure thing. Um, I, first of all, I'm really, really delighted to be here um, because I always you know, enjoy talking about the stuff that we do and, and the research in the lab and so on. But I am a I'm an associate professor at Aarhus University, which is in Denmark, and I'm also the director of the Recreational Fear Lab, which is a research center. And the Recreational Fear Lab is put into the world to take us deeper into the psychological and physiological machine room of frightening entertainment. And so, one of the things we're interested in is the so-called paradox of horror. Why is it that so many people voluntarily seek out and get pleasure from entertainment that is specifically designed to evoke what uh, psychologists like to call negative emotions. That is, why do people spend money on tickets to movies that make them scream in terror and, uh, you know, sweat in anxiety? So that's a big puzzle. But horror is only one kind of activity or one kind of phenomenon that is all about enjoying fear. So there are many different kinds of what we call recreational fear. So activities where people enjoy um, fear, anxiety, dread, disgust, terror, and so on. And so, so that's really what the lab is, is there for. 
I think it's so fascinating. We've been reading through some of your work over here, and the the whole slant of the podcast is that we talk about how horror manifests across different mediums of entertainment. What's different about reading a book that's horror-based versus watching a movie versus playing a video game? Uh, a lot of your research dives into uh, kind of the nuances there also. I, I know you've got a paper about uh, the experience of going through a haunted house and and tracking everybody's response to that and kind of how that how that works recreationally for people. And you've also mm -hmm. got um, the Apex project that we're going to dig into eventually. So yep. uh, I'm thrilled to have you on to kind of give some like actual validation to the nonsense that uh, creatives and I usually spew because uh, <laughs> most of the guests that I bring on here are they're writers, they're actors, they're people in the supply side mm -hmm. of fear, I guess. Uh, we, we create the things that go out into the world intended to scare people. So having two experts on here um, that are able to talk to kind of the, the, the demand side of things, like why do people engage with these things that we're writing and creating? Right. Like, this is such a cool, uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get redundant here, but I'm so excited for this. And um, to have in my office uh, clients coming in with their real life horrors versus how they cope with that in fiction. And so that's something I'm really excited to hear about too. You talk about like the sweet spot of horror and, and stuff like that. So it's, I'm going to be taking what we talk about and apply it because these, <laughs> these opinionated writers, they just think that, you know, everything's interesting and cool, but it's fun to have the science behind it and have evidence base of like, okay, fine. You're right. Horror is, you know, legitimately interesting. Fine. Right. So I'm probably starting off with way too broad of a question here, but my goal as host today is basically to just to open up the floor to you two and then for me to just be a passenger because mm -hmm. I, I do not know the science behind this very much, but I am so fascinated to learn about it. So first question, big, broad, why do people like horror? <laughs> right. But that, that is the question that has motivated <laughs> me, you know, for, for a very long time now. Um, so the thing is, my, my, my professional interest in, in horror and other kinds of recreational fear, it really grows out of personal fascination, you know, the big why question. And I, I have a bunch of very vivid memories from when I was a kid and when I was a teenager, where I would be drawn to scary stories, you know, Stephen King books and uh, Poe stories and uh, slasher movies and things like that, but also paying the price of having to sleep with the lights on for three days after reading Pet Cemetery, or, you know, stuff like that. So, so I asked myself, what, what the hell is going on here? So, so that's a very kind of academic attempt to not really answer your question, just to <laughs> serve it back to you in, in other terms. But, but, but the, I guess the shortest possible answer for me is that people are designed in air quotes to find pleasure in playing with fear. And, uh, and horror is one way in which we can play with fear. And I use the word play in a, in a literal sense. I do think that when people go to watch horror movies or visit haunted attractions or play The Last of Us or whatever, it really is a form of play. And I think this, this notion that, that recreational fear is all about playing with negative emotion is evident in, in the kinds of things we do to, to entertain our kids. So one of the th first things that people do to make babies happy is a baby jump scare in the form of peekaboo, or we throw them into the air and catch them again, or chase them around the house pretending to be a monster. That's a way in which we kind of construct this imaginative threat scenario, if you will. We, we pretend there is danger, and the kid pretends there is danger, but they know they're safe. Uh, yes. And that kind of playful uh, safety frame allows them to to find enjoyment in, in that stimulation, in, in, in that emotional stimulation. So it's all about playing with fear. And that's something that we are designed by Mother Nature to, to enjoy for good reasons that I can get back to. Literally 10 minutes before we came down here to record, record this, our, our three-year-old was climbing, hiding under our bed. Uh, and like, hey, buddy, what are you doing down there? I'm hiding from the dinosaurs. There you go. Okay, <laughs> sure. <Yeah. Yes. laughs> like, clearly not a real thing, but he wanted to play around with fear. Like, it's yes. perfect into what we're talking about. Well, in yep. the way that you describe it, too, those imaginative 
threat scenarios. It's like a rehearsal, you know, mm-hmm. like a like a little animal that's that's chasing its sibling to to practice getting away from a predator or something like that. It seems very like biological too, but they're giggling while they do it. Right. Right. I think that's exactly right. And there is so much fascinating biological research on on play in non-human animals and just how important that kind of behavior is. I mean, there are studies done on rat babies that are play deprived and they grow up, you know, stunted. They can't really function socially if they haven't been able to to play. And that's similar for so many other um, mammalian infants. Of course, it would be ethically indefensible to right to experimentally <laughs> deprive a child of play, but I can I can barely handle watching the experiments of um, they do the separation anxiety experiments when the parent leaves the room. I can barely watch those. The, yeah. My heartstrings cannot handle. Nope. So I, I appreciate the our animal friends for giving us insight. <laughs> yes, we should thank the rat babies for. for I thank <laughs> all the rat babies for their for their sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. So going along these lines, then, so if we're trained at such a young age to enjoy that fear play, uh, I guess. That translates as we grow into finding the mediums of entertainment because we, as we grow up, the the real world dangers become more and more apparent and more and more present in our lives. So maybe escapism is a way to get back to that youthful exuberance again or something. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of the term escapism. Um, mm, okay, in, interesting. Yeah, because I don't think it's escape. Uh, really? Yeah, and. You know, take, for example, um, apocalyptic pandemic movies like Mm -hmm. Contagion, which is a it's a 10 year old movie or 12 year old movie, which is about an airborne upper respiratory disease that is very similar to COVID-19. And it sort of coasted along for 10 years and nobody really knew about it. And and then uh, COVID hit. And in March of 2020, that movie exploded in popularity. It was one of the most frequently streamed movies. So that's exhibit A. Exhibit B is the fact, the empirical fact that uh, horror movies broke all records in terms of market share in 2020 and 2021. And so those were a couple of pretty scary years. And you would think that people had enough of, you know, deadly viruses and um, apocalypse-like circumstances and, uh, anxiety-provoking unpredictability in the real world. And yet they looked to pandemic movies and horror movies uh, rather than, I don't know, rom-coms or whatever. Fairy tales. Exactly, yeah. So so I think really um, one major function of horror, narrative horror, so horror stories in, in movies or books or whatever, is to act as a kind of, I want to say a navigational tool. It's almost like maps that we consult when the world seems suddenly scary and unpredictable to us. Um, so it's not so much that we escape, is that we turn to scary imaginative stories as a kind of wayfinding device. Uh, what what so so like in the early days of the pandemic, nobody knew what the hell was going to happen because this was historically unprecedented to almost every you know single person alive so we look to fiction for uh, similar depictions to see well maybe maybe this will give me a kind of rehearsal imaginative vicarious rehearsal that i can use and i think the worst case scenarios that that even supernatural horror stories because they're generally not really about the supernatural stuff they're about the the psychological and the social consequences of some kind of supernatural threat you know, that's where that's where the learning is. That, that's where we can learn something about what does it feel like to face the worst possible situation? What happens to me psychologically when I'm under pressure? What happens to, like, you know, The Mist by Stephen King? It's about it's a kind of outlandish story. It's, a, it's an old mm-hmm. thing. It's a novella from 1980 or so that was famously made into a movie and then a television show. I think I've seen that one. Yeah, it's about this, you know, these people who who seek refuge in a in a uh, in a supermarket because there's a weird mist that kind of descends on their on their town, and that mist is, of course, full of these um, terrifying monsters from another portal, another dimension. 
Um, but it's not really about the monsters. It's about what happens to this group of people who are barricaded in the in the supermarket and how they split up in these different groups. And some of them are pro-social and altruistic and want to help the rest. And some are kind of selfish and want to sacrifice the others. And um, in that sense, it's a very it's very realistic socially and psychologically speaking, even if the monsters are unrealistic. And so, so, so that's a kind of rant to push back <laughs> against the term of escapism, because I think horror serves important functions beyond giving us, you know, a couple hours of, of, uh, of entertainment. I love that. And you can tell that I have a lot more feelings than the host because I'm like tearing up because I feel so empowered by the idea of it being a rehearsal and like the idea of it not just being like an escape, not just like, um, what is it? Masochism when you like to hurt yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's more, it, it is more productive than that. So I, I appreciate that new perspective. That was very cool. Yeah, I think that's the, and that that really has become kind of a major focus of of the work we do in the recreational fear lab, um, because um, there are so many kind of misunderstandings or points of stigma surrounding scary entertainment. You know, in a in a kind of cultural value hierarchy, it's almost at the very bottom next to pornography. Uh, so there's a lot of prejudice. Um, yeah, and. Uh, and there is, I think, partly it's because it, it, it really is about emotional stimulation, which in our culture is seen as somehow less valuable than intellectual stimulation. Mm. Uh, but for one thing, why would you not want to be emotionally stimulated by stories? Uh, why is that less valuable than intellectual stimulation? And finally, who says horror can't stimulate you intellectually? Well, it's all bullshit, basically. Yeah. I wrote a whole book about that. Um also drawing on some of these studies that we have done to kind of get into focus the the, the positive psychological effects. Uh, and so we have some actual empirical data to support these these idea of uh, ideas of horror stories as rehearsal or a kind of exposure therapy that prepares us for the challenges of the real world. I know Jesse's over here writing a hundred notes and like pointing to follow up questions that I she am. wants to ask. So I think we're, I think we're throwing the whole script out for the episode as we no. typically do. Sorry, but guys. <laughs> we've got, no, this is amazing. Um, so we, we've got, I, I think three branch off questions now just from that, but I'm going to let Jesse just run with it from here for a bit. Thanks. I have control. Um, <laughs> you mentioned a book. I would like to know a little bit about that. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's called A Very Nervous Person's Guide to Horror Movies. <laughs> That's perfect. I should have read that book 10 years ago. <laughs> it only came out uh, it only came out a year a year and a half oh, ago. Cool. So I'm not behind. I just need it now. No. Yes. Uh, it came out on uh, Oxford University Press um, in cool. 2021 around uh, Halloween. And uh, the book is it's 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 research based, but it's I tried to write it in such a way that it would be entertaining or at least not bore people to death. So even though it's, you know, academic and built on on science and it's peer reviewed and so on, uh, at least my, my, my mission was to make it readable. Yeah. And, uh, and it really addresses all of the major concerns somebody might have about horror. For example, can horror movies kill you? Uh, can they warp you mentally? Is the current explosion of horror movies a symptom of a sick society? What about kids in horror? Mm -hmm. Uh, What about the jump scare? Is that a primitive effect that should be avoided? Is it, I don't know, a a kind of aesthetic uh, failure on the the part of a movie maker to rely on jump scares? Um, So I address those kinds of questions and, and try to mobilize what we know about the psychological, the physical, the moral effects of horror stories. And the take-home message is, don't be so concerned. Love it. I know, just touching on a couple of those things that you said, we, we've talked about a lot of that stuff in previous episodes with the with the jump scares or with the horror for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so having all of that condensed into one book, like anybody who's consistently been listening to the podcast, here we go, easy sales. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay. Um, so in the research that you've been putting out, we're talking just now we've been talking a little bit about like the why and then also kind of validating the importance. Um, but in your research, you did find a couple ways that people react differently. So I'm interested to hear about those like specific categories. And then maybe I we can discuss or I can surmise like kind of the types of people that would fall into those specific categories. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's long been sort of a, a dream of mine to establish a kind of personality profile of the horror fan. Love it. Right. Like, a, a, like an academic BuzzFeed quiz. We need this. <laughs> yeah. And, and so we, we actually did that back in, I think this was back in 18. Uh, so we used a kind of psychometric instrument that is a, an instrument to measure um, personality profile. And we used a model of personality that's called the big five, mm -hmm. which is very uh, well validated. So there are these five dimensions of personality and, you know, everybody scores somewhere on each. So dimension. we'll need to let him know what those five are because I'm on the same page here, but right. So, for example, the dunce in the room He's is a little behind. Blissfully unaware. Big five for dummies. Big five for dummies. Uh, yeah. So, so for example, um, are you very introverted or very extroverted? And, okay. and that, so that's a kind of dimension, and you can place uh, anybody somewhere on that mm -hmm. uh, that axis, if you will. So it's in, it's in, extroversion, introversion, neuroticism. Right. Um, is there one that's conscientious? Conscientiousness. That's conscientiousness. Right. Yeah. And then what are the other? And openness to experience. <laughs> and uh, how many is that? That's four. Got that's one more. <laughs> oh, is it something, I... something communicative or mood wise? I don't recall. Um... Man, we're the experts. We have uh, openness to experience, conscientiousness extroversion agreeableness right. is that last one we were searching for and neuroticism yeah. that's it. it yeah so so we did this huge survey asking just over 1000 americans to you know reply to a bunch of questions that have been uh, demonstrated to give an indication of where you know people score on these five dimensions and then we had a bunch of questions about their horror preferences like do you tend to enjoy horror media how often do you watch horror movies? Um, do you tend to do it alone or with, with somebody else? Uh, do you believe in, in the supernatural? Uh, a whole bunch of questions. Really, it was a very long questionnaire. And uh, I had a couple of expectations. Like I thought neuroticism would probably be important. And that's not, you know, neurotic in the old Freudian sense. Neuroticism is a measure of how strongly somebody responds to a negative stimulus. So how much of a disaster is it to you if you are standing in line at the supermarket and you discover you forgot your wallet at home? Some people will take that in their stride. And for some, it's like, oh, oh, oh no, my world is going to collapse. <laughs> so I thought probably, probably, you know, a horror fan might be somewhere in the middle on neuroticism, probably not very neurotic, probably also not very um, fearless. I'm also surprised by that. Yeah, but but. But actually, what we found, what we found was an ungodly mess, <laughs> which, which at first, you know, which at first frustrated me because which is disappointing in research to not have a clear answer. Yeah, but then, you know, I, I I thought about it and it occurred to me this is actually really interesting. There is no personality profile of the horror fan. There are horror fans who are extremely neurotic. There are horror fans who are. Uh, exceptionally open to experience. There are horror fans who are very agreeable. There are horror fans who are the opposite. Um, so it, it's, it really is, you know, it really depends. Um, so, so that to me became an eye opener. Uh, also because something else we found in that study is that it's not really a niche phenomenon. So, the majority of the population, and this was a representative sample, the majority of the population self-identify as horror fans, as somebody who enjoys horror media. It's more than 50%. Another surprise. You guys are everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Second surprise, um, the sex difference that everybody expects really isn't there. It's not really a male phenomenon. That used to be the case, that, at least back in the 80s. 
back in the you know bad old days when people thought that horror movies would make you sadistic and mm -hmm. psychopathic and probably also it was a male thing you know teenage boys sitting in the basement uh staring at posters of leatherface and and uh, freddy krueger and fantasizing about killing young women that's not what it is right um there was a kind of statistically significant effect in terms of openness to experience. So horror fans tend to be a little bit more open to experience, which means they enjoy new experiences, they enjoy adventure, they enjoy intellectual stimulation, more so than people who don't like horror. And here's one more interesting thing from that study. Uh, more than 80% of people watched at least one horror movie in the last year. And that, you know, that that's that's more than the proportion of people who enjoy horror, which means there is a sizable chunk of the population who occasionally watch horror movies, even yes. though they don't really enjoy it. They're horror curious. Yeah, they must be. <laughs> or very patient or very patient spouses. You know, I, I don't um, know. What's we going I was on. gonna say we have some <laughs> friends who have mixed reviews of um, our movie choices, but mm. they would be part of that percent of right. people who've watched one just because. We, yeah, we watched the menu with them the other day. Have you seen oh, that yeah. one yet? Yeah, I love it. it I loved it too. <laughs> yeah. I I intentionally went out and tried to find something that wasn't a horror movie for them to watch, and uh -huh. it looked like like from the poster and from the trailer, it looked like it was going to be this drama piece. And we got to the part where uh, Jeremy or whatever his name is, they, made a mess. This is this is Jeremy's mess, and everybody <laughs> just looked at me like you jerk. Are you kidding us? <laughs> Of course yeah. there's murder. Of course. Yeah, that was a big, big WTF moment. That was great. <laughs> that yeah. was so great. Uh, yeah. But anyhow, that's but, that to say, um, I, I think horror fans are very good at pulling non-horror fans maybe into our bubble a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. So this all ha happened because... I sent the Psychology Today article to a group of our, our friends and, and specifically my best friend who's become his horror best friend. Mm -hmm. um, and we that was just a casual thing I did. It was an article that said why some people don't like horror. And I just sent it off. And here we are. But that it's so interesting because like he said, the horror bubble, I oh, man, this is a big moment. I, I consider myself a horror fan. Yes. And it's taken <laughs> 10 years, 10 years to to get to this place because I didn't have that very important book, A Very Nervous Person's Guide to Horror, <laughs> to train. So I, I just think that's it's very cool to understand the different sides of it. I. I want to go go into this story a little bit because I think it can lead into a good launch point for Ooh, our discussion. He can analyze me. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> um, I want to be when, analyzed. I do all the analyzing every day. Um, so I talked about this with James Sabata on the Necronoma.com podcast. Um, mm. the, the way that we met, she basically tricked me into thinking she wasn't somebody she was. I Listen. went to her apartment and she had Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's <laughs> Bram Stoker's Dracula <laughs> sitting below the TV and the sixth sense. And I was so pumped, like, Hey, a horror fan. So I immediately threw her into the waters with the walking dead uh -huh. thinking she had some, some horror background. She could handle it and it was fine. I traumatized her. Absolutely. <laughs> Thoroughly um, traumatized. Nightmares staying up uh, because she couldn't sleep because of those stupid zombies. I imagined mm -hmm. every person I loved turning into a zombie. I have envisioned all the horrific injuries I would uh, obtain during the apocalypse. Like, staying in the same room and he would twitch and I would be like, Oh my God, he's a zombie. I have to, what, what, what am I going to use to kill him? I have a pen. I have like, it was a rough couple months. Right. But I think bringing this back to that article um, mm -hmm. that we were talking about, I think you, you have this, I don't want to call it a theory, mm. uh, but you have this theory about the sweet spot of fear that I think I overshot with her because mm -hmm. I misunderstood where she was. <laughs> right. Can you talk a little bit about the sweet spot of fear and like where people find enjoyment in this stuff versus trauma? Yeah. Yeah. So he says jokingly, but we're getting into that. Like <laughs> right. psychologically trauma is what I do. So let's talk yes. about the sweet spot before we talk about the consequences. For sure. Uh, the sweet spot is um, 
let me give you some background because, and, and feel free to stop me because I'll just keep, you know, I'm, I'm like a Pavlovian dog and you guys rang the bell and I just keep <laughs> ver- verbally if, if allowed, if I'm allowed to interrupt, that's good permission to have because it takes a lot of self-control not to. Interrupt. Right. Please do. Um, but um, my, my colleagues and I have been doing these haunted house studies for seven years now where oh, yeah. we travel to a haunted attraction in Denmark in something called Dark Valley. And, uh, and we collect data. And we have a couple of reasons for doing that at a haunted house. One is that there are some very kind of strict uh, ethical boundaries for what, we, for what we can do in a lab in terms of frightening people. Uh, but we can go to, you know, a commercial attraction where visitors decided to go and get scared. Because ah, that is a consent in itself. Yes, and so we're just really observing natural behavior. We're not scaring the living crap out of people in the lab, <laughs> uh, facing all kinds of problems if somebody should you know, die from heart attack. Um, we'll let someone else deal with the liability. Exactly. And they have professional first aid crews on, on, on site. And um, so that's one reason. The other is that people, you know, they really get stimulated. I mean, they're chased by a guy in a pig's mask with a chainsaw and there are zombie actors and you know, ghostly little girls and, you know, everything yeah. that the heart could desire from the wide world of horror. Um, so we get some awesome data. And and we did one study back in 2017 where we equipped uh, guests with uh, heart rate monitors and we mounted surveillance cameras with uh, night vision in the scariest rooms and we had a bunch of questionnaires. And so what we were interested in was looking at the relationship between fear and enjoyment. You know, the two basic components of any good horror experience. It has to frighten you and you have to, you know, find that fear enjoyable. And, and so we thought, can we measure fear and enjoyment physiologically? And it turns out we could. And it turns out also that we found this, um, it's going to get a little bit technical, but if if, I'm excited. If, if, if listeners can think back to the days when they did math and remember those uh, coordinate systems that consist of a, an x-axis and a y-axis, and they imagine an x-axis on which you plot um, enjoyment and a y-axis on which you plot fear, what is the relationship then between enjoyment and fear? And many people think, well, when we're talking about horror, it's probably a linear relationship you know, a, a, a straight line that goes upwards into eternity. The scarier, the better, in other words. The more fear, the more enjoyment. That is not what we found. It was not a straight line at a 45-degree angle. Rather, it looked like a rainbow or a U, you know, an inverted U. So so uh, if you're in a horror situation, like reading a King novel uh, or... Um, at a haunted house or watching a, a carpenter movie or whatever, and you don't find it very scary. It's also not very pleasurable because it's boring. If you find it extremely scary so that you feel you're at the very brink of a panic attack and your heart is probably going to flat rate, uh, flat line, it's also not very pleasurable. And there are many historical in- examples of uh, people being, you know, overstimulated, like when the exorcists hit the- theaters at, at Christmas time in 1973, there were literally ambulances outside of movie theaters to take people to, to the hospital, people for whom that movie was just too much. What you want is to hit the sweet spot of fear, which is when enjoyment is maximized. Enjoyment is at the top of the rainbow in our coordinate system. And fear is, you know, just just so, just at the right amount. Um, so it's a kind of an abstract model, but everybody presumably has their own sweet spot of fear. Mm, and that you makes can, it tough. Yeah, it does. Um, and I think probably, probably it changes over time. I mean, I was a very kind of frightened teenager, and it didn't take much to to make me slide, you know, over the rainbow and into that part of the corner. <laughs> over system. the rainbow. Yeah, uh, onto the dark side of the moon. Uh, <laughs> Whereas now it takes it takes a lot to really well I'm still maybe not as jaded as I like to think but so that's what the sweet spot of fear is you know just the right amount amount of fear mm-hmm. stimulation from a horror experience 
that gives you the maximum amount of pleasure. Well, and what he said jokingly earlier was besides trauma, but when I, you know, have people in, in my office with that trauma, that is a very real side of the continuum. You can either be bored by what's happening or it completely overwhelm your nervous system. Like trauma is not just, I didn't like that movie or I'm going to throw up because the exorcist spewed pea soup everywhere. It's an overwhelm of the nervous system and you, and you initiate that fight, flight or freeze. And that's scarring for your body, not mm-hmm. not just like a bad memory that you have. Yeah, I was I was talking to a coworker yesterday actually about just this podcast and horror stuff in general, and uh, she like immediately in the conversation she brought up the fact that when she was younger, I guess in high school or something, she tried watching Saw two, mm-hmm. um, and she was fine with it, and she was fine with it, and she was fine with it, and then they got to the needle pit scene, and she said she literally had a panic attack. Like right. her friend had to turn the movie off; they had to like go do something else. She like took a long time to come down. So like I, and I don't think that's trauma for her necessarily, but the fact that all these years later she can immediately recall that moment and that scene mm-hmm. is you know, that she did not enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. Um, but it can it can make an impression. So yes. um, another thing that we've touched on a couple of times in some of these answers, um, you you've mentioned um, doing things with a group um, or the social side of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know listening to terrifying tomes of terror, the podcast the other day, they had Grady Hendrix on, mm-hmm. um, talking about his new novel, how to sell a haunted house. Um, and he was talking about just how glad he is that the pandemic's over or like waning down. Um, because, um, I guess he wrote the novel during the pandemic and was starved for that interactive element of everything, being in a room with a bunch of people and mm-hmm. like getting to react to it. And it, Grady, if you're listening, you're not. But if you're listening, <laughs> I'm so sorry to be like paraphrasing and putting words in your mouth here. But um, it, this is all leading to what is different about the experience of watching a horror movie by yourself versus watching a horror movie with a group? Does that trigger the sweet spot differently? Is there a different psychology associated with it when you're with friends? Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really excellent question. Also, I think because it gets at what I think is, is, is an inherently social dimension to, to recreational fear for most people. Um, I think most, if not all, horror experiences are essentially social. Uh, People go to watch horror movies together. They go to haunted houses together. I mean, the haunted house where we do our studies, it's more than 99% of people who come in a group. Almost nobody comes alone. I would worry about that 1% who showed up by themselves. Yes. (laughs) I would bring them into the group. What's going on in your life, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to counsel them before and after. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Actually, we should do some some interviews. Uh, but and, and there is an obvious exception here, and that is the horror novel or you know the book. Mm-hmm. But the book is an is a historical anomaly. So probably for I don't know forty thousand, fifty thousand years, people have been telling each other horror stories, and I mean telling each other like verbally sharing stories in a group. That's what people in hunter gatherer societies do. Whenever they have a spare moment, they entertain each other with uh, stories, many of which are really terrifying. Mm -hmm. And then about 200 years ago, people started reading, you know, in private. But that's a very new phenomenon. And I think it's the only real exception to the really social nature of, of, of these kinds of experiences. And, and I think it brings, you know, there was a kind of emergent added value from the social dimension of, of, of horror experiences. Now, one thing is I would never watch a horror movie alone because it would just kill me. You know, it would be too scary. Uh, so whenever I'm on, you know, uh, uh, business trips abroad, when I have to go to a conference or meet up with fellow researchers in another country, I don't bring horror books. I bring something sci-fi or fantasy. Um, and I wouldn't watch a horror movie in a hotel room by myself. 
So there is, because for me, it becomes too scary. I, I need the sense of safety that comes with watching scary stuff with my wife and my daughter and my son. Uh, but, but here's where it becomes complicated because it's not just a kind of buffering effect. It's not just that, that, that you feel safer when you do these things in a group. We actually did a study in the haunted house and we're, uh, right now actually writing up those, the results of that study where we looked at what is the difference between going through a haunted house in a group with people you don't really know versus being in a group of people that you feel emotionally close to. And as it turns out, there is an increase in physiological arousal from being in a group with people with whom you're emotionally close. So that actually boosts the experience. You get more stimulated. Uh, You synchronize physiologically, which is to say it may feel safer, but you respond more strongly on a bodily level. So I think it actually strength sharing the experience strengthens it. I I I have something relevant to add. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I didn't think I'd get to do this today. Um, there is um, kind of tying together the idea with the novel and this idea of sharing the experience with people that you like. There's a phenomenon that a bunch of horror writers and like the horror community on Twitter have been trying to figure out for forever um, about. All of the horror writers on Twitter, I shouldn't say all, 90% of the horror writers on Twitter and on Instagram and everything else are overwhelmingly nice to each other Mm. and supportive and helpful. Um, And same with horror readers, horror readers like reach out to the horror authors and they interact and like there's this whole community built out. I love trying to connect this idea of the novel being an individual experience, but everything else being more social leaning. Mm-hmm. connecting that idea to the Twitter experience because you see people have that individual experience of reading the novel by themselves. And then immediately we go out and we try to find a book club. Seek out yeah. the uh, we go out and we try to find the author on Twitter and we're all here for it. Yeah. Um, whereas maybe like with romance novels and other stuff, like th- their, their communities don't seem to be as tightly knit. Those are mm. read in private. But with horror, there's this inherent drive to go find our people once we finish a book. And, yeah. and you'll see it all over Twitter of like, oh my gosh, this book was so good. And everybody else chiming in like, yeah, I loved it too. I think, um, yeah, that's a great point. And also I think, you know, StokerCon, the, the place where horror writers association get together is it's a famously you know nice place to be and people are people want to talk they want to share they want to help each other uh it's 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 a it's a similar thing to there seems to be a a fun kind of overlap between heavy metal and horror yes and and so a lot of metal heads are horror fans and vice versa and and of course there's a lot of kind of horror imagery in in heavy metal like the the, the iconography of Iron Maiden, for example, or mm-hmm. the themes that, that that music tends to circle around. Music and, is another uh, medium. We're here for it. Yeah. I, I and, have this pipe dream of getting Ice Nine Kills on the podcast somehow because <laughs> they have like what does that mean? blatantly horror centric songs and aesthetics and everything else. Yeah. Is that a band? Yes. Oh. That would be awesome. But we, we, <laughs> we were invited to present some of our stuff from the Apex of Fear project at Copenhill, which is a huge heavy metal um, concert in, in Copenhagen. And they also had this nerd con. And, oh and gosh, I, have a friend, I, I have a friend who's a cop uh, in Copenhagen, the capital of Denmark. And he tells me that whenever there is Copenhill, it's an annual event. And all these people in this, you know, uh, black leather jackets Spikes. with all these. <laughs> there is no violence. There are no problems, you know. They, they look so dangerous, these people. But they're really not. And so yep. maybe there's a kind of catharsis, you know, they get all of that nasty stuff out, you know, by, you know, uh, yeah. living that music and, and delving into that. And maybe it's a similar thing with horror stories. Yeah, I don't want to take a sharp turn, but I'd love to get a little bit nerdy um, about the science of it, um, because mm-hmm. one of the things I spend a lot of time um, researching, reading and applying in therapy is um, polyvagal theory of um, of your body and just the sorry. You're so, confused. <laughs> so polyvagal 
um, the, your nervous system has different sections and there is a specific section that is a strong reaction in your fight or flight response. Okay. And that's the vagus nerve. And so the idea is there are different parts of that nerve that get activated by different things. They, it controls, it, it receives information from different senses. Okay. And there is an entire branch that is associated with social engagement. So whether that's reacting to a scary social interaction and that affects your nervous system or seeking out comfort during a time of activation. And so there's parts of your nerves that are attuned to seeking out other people. And so that's in our eyes, that's in our, our chest, you know, like a feeling of a hug. We look at other people's facial expressions. Are you safe or not? So as, as social beings, like, those those groups of people are are feeding off each other quite literally. Like our nervous systems are interacting, and so mm-hmm. I can see how in the haunted house, a group of people we we're all having fun, so we're all allowed to be scared. We're not hitting that point of danger because we're together. Yeah, nice. You seem very confused. <laughs> no, no, no. I was following you. Um, when you when you use the phrase "feeding <laughs> off of each other's nervous systems," I like story idea yeah. started working, <laughs> and I need to shut it down. Yes, I'm in the middle of something right now. Uh, I do not need to start. <laughs> I'm talking about like productively, you gory weirdo. Uh, but so yeah, yeah the ner- like the idea that. All of the things we're talking about, these behaviors and these preferences, it's all based on your reaction from your nervous system. Like the, the um, physiological data that they're collecting, that is your nervous system reaction that's telling you, are you safe or not? And so there is a, it's kind of like a foot break that you can use in your nervous system of social engagement. Like, am I going to freak out or not? Got it. And I use that with clients all the time. Um, speaking of sharp turns. I, I feel like we could take this interview in a couple of different directions here. We You mentioned the Apex project, so mm. potentially talking about that a little bit more in depth. Or I see that we're getting kind of close to time, and I had built in that I want to talk about just what horror movies and books do you enjoy? Uh, just do a totally um, subjective, fun, what, what are some recommendations uh, sort of a slant to it. Uh, which way would you like to go? Would you like to talk about Apex or would you like to just start start talking horror movies? I feel like we can do both. Yeah, I can I can give a real quick uh, rundown of what Apex is. Um, okay. Because it's actually a thing of the past now. We finished that project for the time being. Oh, wow. And it's uh, not the next installment in the Alien series. It, like I don't Apex so. Predator. No, no. Is that from something <laughs> else? Apex is something. Apex is a video game, but oh, it's dang. something different. Okay, anyhow, though. <laughs> yeah, so, but the, the Apex of Fear, it, it's a project that um, we got money from the Danish Innovation Fund to see if some of these results that we had gotten from the haunted house studies and lab studies, whether that could be, you know, turned into some kind of commercially viable product. And... Um, and so the idea is, well, if there is that sweet spot of fear and we can measure the sweet spot of fear, what if we can design a horror virtual reality game which changes to keep the player in the sweet spot of fear? So imagine somebody in a VR headset with uh, physiological sensors, electrodes on their fingers and their chest, and an artificial intelligence that, that constantly changes the scariness of the game to keep people in the sweet spot of fear. That is what that project was about. It, I, we play the super massive games a lot over here yeah. uh, with Until Dawn and the yes. quarry. And I remember in Until Dawn at the very beginning, there was this cool moment where they tried to do like a super crude uh, version of what you're talking about, yes. where you were in this psychology seat and mm-hmm. uh, what scares you more, the scarecrow or the clown? And you picked yes. one and then they, they restructured the game based on that. Yeah. Um, so this, this would be like a much more intentional version of that almost moment by yeah. moment. It sounds like, yeah, we were certainly inspired by, by, um, by until dawn, but we wanted, you know, uh, we wanted to measure. So, put people in a kind of virtual environment that's full of spiders, put them on a plank at the, you know, the fourth floor and they have to, to cross an empty void, put them in a cave that gets increasingly uh, tight and then measure their responses and then use that against them. Or really, 
use it you know, <laughs> for them to keep them in the sweet spot, right? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Use that to stimulate their nervous yes. system. <laughs> yes, to, to, to just the right degree. Um, so it was really, really to see if we could take some of those research findings and, and, and turn it into a product. Very cool. And I, I guess the natural end question of that is, end product could you how'd it go Uh, it went well Uh, it was a one-year project to really see if it was technically feasible and commercially viable and we have a so-called mvp a minimal viable product so we have a prototype um, that does what we wanted it to do but we need more funding to kind of continue the the project nice okay so so that's Um, what that was um but if we want to talk about you know Sharing our love of horror and uh, yes. uh, that sort of thing. Let's do that for a few minutes now. Okay. We, we've been very technical with all of this. Let's just yeah. blow it open. Right. Um, well, I love this stuff. Uh, and, and so I've been really, really privileged and fortunate to, to be able to make a career out of studying this stuff. And, and for me, you know, it's, it's Stephen King, really, that, that, that it all comes down to. Um, I'm a huge King fan and I read everything he does. And, uh, it's really my gateway drug was, uh, the stand, <laughs> the TV miniseries adaptation Aww. of nice. yeah, of King's book. Um, but I'm also, you know, one, th- one thing we found, I'm going to weave a little bit of research into my, my answer here because if you must, <laughs> yeah, because we did, while we didn't find a personality profile of the horror fan, we did find different kinds of horror fans. Okay. So oh, yeah. Yeah. So we found the adrenaline junkie who wants to be, who wants a kick and who wants stimulation. We found another kind, which we call the white knuckler. And that is somebody who uh, sees horror more as a kind of personal challenge in keeping fear at a tolerable level. And, mm-hmm. uh, and who often will say that they feel they learn something important about themselves from reading scary books or going, going to haunted attractions. And then we found a third kind that we call the dark coper, who is somebody who uses horror to navigate a scary world and very often, uh, intriguingly, as a way of self-medicating and helping themselves with problems of uh, anxiety or depression, which okay. for me was a very surprising finding that some people with generalized anxiety or depression use horror as a way to kind of medicate themselves or you know help themselves. And so... So I'm probably a kind of white knuckler, um, and to get you know to 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 get this this the, at the sweet spot of fear, uh, and not be overwhelmed and also not bored, um, I like to. I think probably literature is my favorite medium. Not just because it is less scary than movies, because that's not necessarily the case. I mean, sometimes a story will hit you at a much more kind of profound level than a movie ever could, but also because I think horror horror literature is more psychologically interesting on the whole than horror movies. I mean, one thing King is so good at is putting us into the minds of people who are placed in these really wild situations like Danny Torrance in The Shining or um, uh, the people in in Pet Cemetery. you know, really exploring the depths of of grief and horror. Um, So... That, I, I love that stuff, but there are, mm-hmm. I have a sweet spot for, you know, the kind of um, 1980s horror boom American writers. Uh, okay. I love that, you know, F. Paul Wilson and Robert McCammon is a favorite of mine. Um, but I love it all, really. McCammon, Boy's Life or Swan Song? Do I have to choose? <laughs> no there's there's the perfect answer yeah <laughs> um very nice um and then any any games that you're super inspired by uh we we mentioned until dawn already yeah. and you mentioned the last of us early on yeah i don't play a lot of video games partly because I, I have difficulty finding the time partly because video games for me are basically like you know mainlining heroin uh, I get. I, I really like it, and I can't. I can't let my career go down the drain from becoming a video game junkie. Uh, and then, and then oh, finally, uh, it's 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 almost you know it's pretty often too scary for me. 
I played a game called Amnesia, The Dark Descent. And that yes. game, it tells you in the beginning, you know, switch off the lights, put on headphones, turn up the volume. And stupidly, I did those things. <laughs> and it almost killed me. You're good at following directions. <laughs> I am too good, probably. Or high on conformity. Um, but so, I don't know, it's, I, it, it's often too much for me. Yeah, I, I understand the Dead Space remake came out last night as we're recording this. And I'm just like sitting here having to make a decision like, do I pay attention to my family or do I go down the rabbit hole? I can yes. tell you what my answer to that is. <laughs> right. <laughs> but same when, when he's playing the like first person, you make choices or you're mm -hmm. the one looking around. I, I do not play. I watch. That is a movie for me because yeah. if, if I'm handed the remote, the remote will fly out of my hand at the, <laughs> at the first scare or yeah. you know, pressing a button fast enough. Mm -mm, can't do it. Yeah. But they're fun to watch. Yep. And you've watched some of people trying out the new like VR stuff and yep. Yep. instead of playing it. Yeah. yeah. Um okay. Well uh, I've got one final question here. Um so uh, a, thank you so much for coming on here and That's spending your question. time with us. I'm building to it. <laughs> um, thank you so much. This has been enlightening and fun, and I've enjoyed every second of it. Um, final question. I usually end by asking our uh, guests to tell listeners, like, where do they find your books? Where do they where do they find your movies? Like, how can they go engage with you more? Um that's kind of an odd question with you because when we found the recreational fear lab and we're looking into all this stuff initially, my first reaction was, Oh my gosh, I want a t-shirt. So I was like I, on the website. I was going to say we and, need, we and need she was swag. making fun of me. She was making fun of me. They're, they're a, they're a research lab. They don't sell merchandise. That's not part of the grant money. Honestly, so you can't, you can't put, <laughs> So what what is the best way for people to support the Recreational Fear Lab, show their love? Like, where, where do we connect with you? Very open-ended question. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, well, I think the best way to show that people can show us love is to uh, help us spread, you know, the good word that you shouldn't be so scared of playing with fear. Um, yeah. Oh, that's a shitty answer. I love it. No, <laughs> no, no, that was okay. amazing. It okay. made my heart warm. <laughs> okay, good, good. Um, because that's you know we we and we can't sell the t-shirts because the it's taxpayers' <sighs> money that fund our activities. But I will send Fair. you guys a t-shirt each if you send oh. me your address afterwards. Oh my gosh, that's so nice. Um, <laughs> sure. and so so the t-shirts are and we get a lot of actually a surprising number of requests for t-shirts, but that's because they look so cool. We had this logo designed yeah. by. My colleague Thomas Turkelson, who was the lead developer on the Apex of Fear project, he's amazing. He's he's a genius at measuring fear. You know that's his specialty, mm -hmm. and what an awesome skill to have in a recreational fear lab. But then right. he also <laughs> went and designed that you know logo, and and so we just had to have those T-shirts made, and we use them to compensate participants in in uh, in research. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure I can find a couple extra for you guys. Um, but yeah, also, I would love that. yeah. So and and so people can find us online. We have a website at uh, fear.au.dk and a Twitter account, and also a, an Instagram account. But that you know, just I, I have my interns help me running that because I'm too old for Instagram. <laughs> I I had to get one finally when Twitter was potentially dying. Yeah. Um, so I've got one running now, but I'm kind of in the same boat. Like, I don't know what I'm doing there. Right. I need interns. Yes. That's what I need. <laughs> oh my gosh. So if, if anybody is listening that is a little bit closer to you geographically, um, how do you go about recruiting participants or how do you, um, put those projects out there for people to be involved in? Yeah. We almost always need participants, um, not that people don't want to participate. I mean, we have found it relatively easy to lure people into the lab and then they'll be put in the kind of really comfortable seats. It's a creepy way to say that. Yeah. yeah. And then they uh, <laughs> they watch, you know, clips from horror movies on a huge flat screen TV while we measure skin temperature and heart rate and electrodermal activity so much how much people sweat and we film them and do eye tracking and things like that. Uh, but we always need participants. So anybody who would like to be part of our studies could just shoot me an email. 
and my email address is pretty easy to find online. Sounds good. Fantastic. And uh, if I was potentially going to go buy a plane ticket right now oh to come gosh. over here, because being a lab rat sounds like the most fun thing I could possibly do. No, <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, Jesse's going to murder me. What um, was that about spending time with your family? Yeah, no. <laughs> Bring the family. Oh, yes. Okay. That sounds more fun. <laughs> yeah. Deal. Um, but yes, um, wrapping up again, I'm getting redundant at this point, but this has been so fun to talk to you. Um, any, any last words for anybody? Um, no, I just really appreciate the, like the people applying the people aspect of these horror mediums. Um, and it's nice to hear two different perspectives on that. As far as you can tell me the history of every horror movie ever, and I can talk about the nervous system and he can tell you why you like what you like. It was just a fun combination, like different, different perspectives on on this thing. Yeah, I agree. I'm a little sad that time has run out, but uh, maybe a couple of years down the line, I could come back for a follow-up. So we probably need a weekly call, right? Anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. Awesome. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Uh, This is going to close us out for the week, but before you go, please don't forget to like or subscribe or review or find a fear sweet spot on your streaming service of choice. Uh, Stay spooky. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go.